Welcome to East Lake. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, this is uh, a church for people who don't typically like church, that we, so we tried to start a, f- a few years ago. My name's Brent, and I'm the teaching pastor here. If this is your first week, you picked a great day to come, although you are coming in at the end of a series. Uh, this is a, a five-week series. We're on part five today. Um, the series is called Spirituality for the Rest of Us. It's been, for us, a look at how do people grow spiritually? How do people move from, you know, I'm coming, I, I like this, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know a lot about what it is. Because here's the deal. When you do church for people who don't like church, you get a lot of inexperienced Christians who say, so now what? Inexperienced Christians who laugh at a video like that, who, who not, they're not sure uh, what, you know, what do I, I do with all of this? And so uh, we have said, all right, well, we, this is, by the way, a perennial question for us. Our, our leadership team uh, meets every month, and then every year we sneak away for like a board retreat for an entire weekend. And one of the topic, uh, agenda topics every year is what is discipleship, which is a, a fancy word for how do people grow spiritually at East. Like it's, it's coming up recurrently because we, we feel like um, we do a good job, a good enough job uh, at being sort of an outreach church. Um, being a, a church that really does attract people who um, aren't into church, and we feel like we're mo- following the model of Jesus, because when Jesus walked on the planet, uh, people who are nothing like him liked him for some reason, and so we feel like shouldn't the same be said for his church. Uh, but then how do we move people forward? And so we've come up with what we call our next steps. Oh, they're on the back of the program. These are kind of like standard actual programmatic ways that we feel like people can grow uh, in, in, at Eastlake and we always point people towards there. But um, in this series, what we've tried to look at is say, all right, there are, there, when we started this thing, there were some guiding principles for spiritual growth that we felt like were important, that we feel like we want to move forward with it, shape and, and, and influence every sort of programming thing that we do, which we don't do a lot of, right? If you've been a part of Eastlake for a while, you know we don't do you know men's group on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, this and that and that. We do Sunday mornings in groups, and that's basically it. Um, and so uh, even when we do figure out to, how to do something, it, we, we want to be super intentional about that um, because there are some guiding principles about what growth looks like for us. And so we said in, in week one that there's an awareness of a variety of methods. Like there isn't one well-worn path that every church follows that, it, it, that um, we're all pretty unique. And so we have a unique calling towards, towards those things. We said there's a value in self-awareness that we all have these blind spots, things in our life. Every person has blind spots that I, the things that I'm probably not walking in obedience, but I don't even know what it looks like to be, to be in the light in that way. And so our responsibility is to the light that we have. And as we grow in that light, and as we respond to the light that we do have, God gives us more. That's been an important thing. And then ignoring the extra fences that oftentimes spirituality or um, established organizational religion tends to put up. Here's what God's fences are. Here's what we think you should do so that you don't ever cross the line of, of this and why those are damaging. So all of this, because you're coming to week five, uh, all four weeks of this series leading up to this are online um, at our website, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. Or if you go to iTunes podcast, you can search Eastlake Tricities and find us in there. But today we're going to be talking about something called best practices overload. This is the finale. And so whenever I do the finale, it tends to be a little bit more practical than maybe some of the other ones were. And so this is like parting shots. If I could give you one last thought on, don't forget this as you go out and try and learn what it means to grow. These are important things to to look at. Um, Best practices overload. There exists in life, it's a business principle called best practices. uh, And it means looking at other people or uh, what's something that somebody else is doing that solves a problem I'm facing or is more efficient than what I'm currently doing. And and so 
um, what happens is businesses a lot of times will incorporate this and they will look at other business um, competitors or people even outside of their um, their scope of work and say, what are they doing? How can we make it more effective? Uh, and so if you're a business person, you, you've probably read this before or know this or read a business book, but um, I read a study about how in, in 2009, General Mills had a production line. They're the guys who produce all the Lucky Charm cereal and all the other ones, uh, all the other good cereals that my mom never let me eat as a kid. They had a production line that they would have to switch over as they would switch over from making this type of cereal to another one. And in general, it took them four and a half hours to make the switch over. And they realized, you know what, one of the ways that we could save some money is if we cut that down a little bit. Who knows how to do something that's a little bit complicated, but to do it in a shorter amount of time? Who does that well? And what they did was they didn't look at other cereal production companies. What they did was they went and hung out with a NASCAR team. They're like, you guys change tires in five seconds that normally it takes Les Schwab to do my tires, about 45 minutes. How do you do it, right? And we're not in the business of changing tires. We are in the business of making things more efficient. So we're going to see all the things that you went through to be able to make that happen. That's best practices. That's best practices, looking at what other people have done and trying to incorporate it uh, for ourselves. And best practices are good. But when it comes to now this spirituality thing, um, if we can, if we attempt to incorporate best practices in, let's look at what's working for other people and see if we can contextualize it for ourselves. It it it's interesting because what we do sometimes is we look at scripture and we like, what's something that people in scripture did that would kind of help maybe make me grow. And when we look at scripture, what we see a lot of times are it's a it's a the Bible is not a book; it's a collection of books, and each book has its kind of own unique genre. There are history books, there are law books, there are poetry books, there are wisdom books, uh, there are uh, early church history books, um, there are letters that Paul wrote to different churches that he started. And, and so what we have a lot of times is descriptive work. Here's what happened. Here's what the people of Israel did. Not prescriptive. Hey, you, for future generations, here's what it takes to please God or anything like that. A lot of times, most of what we have in the Bible is descriptive. Very little of it is prescriptive for us. You could say, well, some of Paul's writings would be, he was writing to early churches. What do you do with Christ? What do you do with the image of Christ? What is it, how does that shape your thinking and how you live out? For sure that there's definitely some things in there. However, most of what we are presented with is descriptive and not prescriptive. And what we find out then as a result of maybe that being sort of a dead end for us is that we move on to looking at people whose spirituality we respect and saying, what is it that you do that works? Which makes sense, right? My wife and I have been um, doing a lot of traveling this summer because uh, we, we've been doing some camping and just long road trips over to the West Side or whatever. And we found, every summer it seems like we find a different podcast that we kind of fall in love with because you're in the car for four or six hours or whatever. And one of the ones that we found recently is a podcast called Book Tour with John Grisham. And the reason that name sounds familiar is because he's an author who's written like, I think 300,000 books or something like that. It's a lot of books. Uh, the Firm, The Client, uh, The Pelican Brief, uh, The Invisible Man, uh, the, or The Innocent Man, uh, so many books. In fact, you probably own some of their books, or if you don't, you could go to a thrift store today and buy one for a nickel. You can buy a John Grisham book for a nickel, uh, or go to your grandma's house. She has a bunch of them, and they're all free. Just steal them from her. Uh, so John Grisham's incredibly popular author. I, I confess, I have I prior to listening to this podcast, had never read a single John Grisham book, but it was intriguing to me because in the summary 
statement of why this podcast is important. He says, because I recognize the name, obviously. He says, uh, John Grisham's going on tour this year to nine different indie booksellers. So he's not going to the main shops. And he, he hasn't done a book tour in 25 years, 25 years. And people ask him, um, why haven't you done a book tour in 25 years? And straight faced, he would respond with, when you sell as many books as I do, you don't really need a book tour. You know what I mean? And then slyly, he would also say, it's also because I, I like people, but I don't like people, if you understand what I'm saying. Like, it's hard for me to sit down at a table, one, to sign 5,000 copies of a book. You just, your hand gets tired. And I'm kind of tired of people coming up going, I loved the client or I loved the firm. And he's like, great. I don't know what to do with that. Thank you. I mean, beyond thank you, buy more copies and move along next, whatever. He's like, people want to have this dialogue with me. And I've invested so much of my life in that. It took me years to write that. Uh, and you read it in two days at the beach, and now like we're friends or something like that. He's like, I, I just it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this, and I'm painting him as a jerk. He's not. He's really actually a fun, lovable um, East Coaster, which is kind of a rare breed. But um, <laughs> as I was listening to the podcast going, my wife and I are like, oh man, I think I like John Grisham. And as a result, I went out and bought my first John Grisham book, Camino Island, the new one that just came out, and it's okay. But anyways, I love him, and I love the podcast. It was great. And what he does in this podcast is he brings on, uh, again, nine different indie booksellers, and he brings with him authors, different authors, um, to do kind of like a roundtable discussion, which is brilliant, because if it's just him for nine weeks in a row, it's like the same repetitive stuff. Why would you ever listen to the podcast? But he brings in authors like, um, uh, uh, he, he brought on Ron Chernow, he brought on um, uh, Ann Patchett, which was one of my favorite ones, David Baldacci, uh, but Ann Patchett was, was one because she's one of my favorite authors, and, and so I wanted to hear kind of her dialogue with him and whatever. And as it goes along, each one of them, they, they do their promo for their books because I'm sure their publisher makes them, you know, sell, sell, make sure you sell this book. But then it becomes the Q&A session. Hey, what does writing look like for you? When are you at your best? And each one of them has unique stories. Like for instance, um, uh, John Grisham feels like best time for me is I wake up in the morning and have a good breakfast. And then I go upstairs and before lunchtime, I try and pound out a thousand words on a bad day, 2000 words on a good day. And that's, then I just, every day, boom, 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 seven days a week, I'm pumping these things out. And David Badashi is like, no, I can't do that. I write my best at night after everybody goes to bed. I'm kind of a night owl. I stay up late. And, and for me, it was, it was one of those things where each of them were kind of offering their values. And this is what works for me. I'm not prescribing this to anybody else. This is just my method by which I do things. Um, as a pastor, I'm like, I'm not an author, so I don't get as much from that, but I can appreciate it because I remember when I used to go to like conferences, like with churches and pastors and whatever, and they would all present their, their best kind of stuff. And one of my favorites is a pastor that I totally respect. His name is Andy, lives in Atlanta, Georgia, has a big church over there. And he was uh, in uh, Seattle for a one day conference. And they have all of these prepared speeches or talks or whatever that they do, which were great. But then my favorite was the notes go away, the iPad gets turned off let's just talk Q&A from the audience. And they begin to ask questions like, what does your weekly schedule look like? How do you sermon prep? How do you manage staff? How do you work with counseling people and all that kind of stuff? And that for me was like the best, not because I'm going to be like, okay, I'm going to pattern my life after him, but it was just a reflection of reality. For me, it was, okay, that's what works for him. This is really, really good. So best practices are kind of an important deal. Now, 
the tendency for us is to automatically assume that we can, that all of that translates over into our spiritual pathway. Brent, so what we need is like a like bring 10 people up here, tell me what works, and then I'll pick and choose the best that I, I like out of all of these. The problem is that um, if we're not careful, we live in such a consumeristic culture and we live in such a uh, uh, comparison culture, really, right? I mean, social media has kind of drawn us to, um, we spend a significant way too much of our time observing what other people are good at, and it kind of makes us feel either good because we're also good at that and we find an affinity towards that or bad because we're not as good as they are and we are they're out and they're just like I just went on a 5k run and you're like I'm reading this from my couch I'm lazy you know and so um that's been a difficult that's a difficult thing for us and so um the danger with the best practices thing is that you can experience what I'd like to call for the sake of today's talk just the best practices overload that because I have been, I come from such a comparison culture that I want to integrate everything and I feel bad when I don't, that there can be a sense of overload. And that overload can lead to guilt because I fail and I'm not good at that. It can lead to paralysis sometimes. I'm so, I'm so overwhelmed with options. I don't even know what to do. So therefore, I do nothing as a result of it, that too much of a good thing, we know this, can become a bad thing. Let me illustrate this in a very, very personal way. So not General Mills abstract or theory or whatever, but specifically, all right? I'm part of a uh, loose group of pastors who started their churches about seven to 10 years ago, okay? I'm on the newer end of it. But when we first started, there was a group of guys who are all kind of affiliated with the Eastlake network. So there's a, a church in San Diego that's Eastlake Chula Vista area. That's the central one. Uh, we are not legally affiliated with them. We just stole the name and the logo because we're cheap and don't like paying for branding, okay? Um, we are not unique in that. There have been other guys who have done that because the name's not important. The, the methods in the DNA are. And so every once in a while, we get together to exchange ideas. Um, we... We do church so uniquely, it's tough to um, find good community with other pastors of established churches who are part of denominations because they just live in a different world than we do. Um, and so it can be somewhat, I don't want to say lonely because that makes me feel like I'm asking for your pity. That's not it at all. But it's nice to have people who are um, doing church for unchurched people in that, in that same way. Uh, and so we get together typically once a year. We'll fly into a location together or drive somewhere if it's close enough. And um, we meet with a pastor who's a part of a, a bigger church and interview him and do some of this Q&A, best practice. What are some of your best practices? And every time we do, we, we reserve one night for uh, an in-home. We usually rent a home. We sit in the living room and everybody is expected to bring and share um, one thing that they're excited about that they've done in their church this last year. It's like show and tell, but for egotistical pastors, okay? <laughs> and so I remember this last year we went to Vegas, which sounds awesome. It was actually an outskirt of Vegas. We did go on the strip one day. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and, and, and surprisingly, there is a very big church in Vegas that we went to to go check it out. Uh, it's doing very well. They're very wealthy. Anyways, um, one of the guys, Dave, 
he's one of our external advisors here at Eastlake. He has a church, pastor's church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was actually in town a couple of weeks ago. We filmed him. We're going to be showing his messages this summer sometime. Um, so you'll see some of those. But he talked about one of the things that was exciting for me. One of the things I'm proud about as a church is we did a thing called a night to remember, which is basically we fully funded a prom night for kids with special needs. And throughout the, tri- throughout the Tri-Cities, throughout Kenosha, Wisconsin, and some of the surrounding areas, we advertised it. We paid for it. We had a limo out there. We bought dresses so that they had something to dress in. We paid for um, makeovers so that they could get their hair done and makeup done and whatever. And then we made it a big deal when they came in. We had a dance party, and it was just, it was an awesome night. He had this video that he showed, and it was like two minutes long. And at the end of the video, you're like, you know, like eyes are puffy, and you're like, dude, this is so cool, man. Good job. Way to go. Awesome. Uh, and then another guy named Skyler talked about how his church participated in a thing called Royal Family Kids Camp, which is kind of popular around here, so you probably have heard of it. But it's basically summer camp, but for kids in the foster care system. So um, some of you grew up going to summer camp, and it was like the best week of your summer. And um, unfortunately, the cost of summer camp just to provide that level of excellence has gone up and up and up every year, and it becomes kind of inhibitive, uh, pro- prohibitive, sorry, for um, foster care families because uh, money's tight and, you know, you uh, it's, it's, it, sometimes it's not a priority for them. So um, they said, well, we're going to do camp just for foster care. And there's state regulations and all kinds of stuff. So it's got to be, it's, it's an expensive camp to run. And so they spend a bunch of money and they bust these kids up and they get off the bus and they got signs and welcoming them. And it's like a one to two uh, leader to student ratio, which is crazy good and just a ton of fun. They take them out, they go camping and fishing and Super awesome. He had this video again. You watch the end of the video and you're like, dude, this is so cool. Another guy, uh, his name is Mike. He had a building donated to him. It was a, a church that was kind of an older church that had been around forever. They had a building location in kind of an urban, but, um, uh, urban neighborhood. And it was an older building, but like real estate property. You couldn't buy, you couldn't touch anything in terms of affording that. But this church was basically dying in terms of getting old. And so they, they said, here's the keys um, as long as you don't do like animal sacrifices or start some sort of a cult, here you go. You know, they took it over. They started a campus, uh, for a low income neighborhood. It was awesome, man. Such a cool story. Another one, last one, Skylar did a Christmas Eve service. Uh, and in this, uh, Christmas Eve service, he had, um, a, a, a mom with some kids, single mom with some kids come up on the stage and kind of share uh, a little bit about their story they, she, they, uh, they gave her um, like a gift card to Walmart and a bunch of cool stuff. And a, I think it was a grocery cart full of groceries and clothes and stuff like that. And then at the very end, they opened up this back. They have like this sliding door in the back, garage door, because they're such a cool church. And they, um, they opened it up and wheeled in this minivan with a big red bow on it. And they gave her the keys to a van. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, we're watching this video and the, the, they do like the testimony story and she's telling her story and you're just like, here you go. You know what I mean? It's like, there it is. <clears throat> and then it was my turn to talk. And I was like, you guys, we have been making some really funny videos that are (laughs) super awesome. And uh, we are now doing cold brew on tap in the lobby. So, yeah. Next? Who wants to go next? And uh, we haven't done another get-together since that. Either that or I haven't been invited. One of the two. I'm not sure which one it is. But 
there is a sense in which you come back from an event like that. And if you've ever, in your line of work, if you've ever been flown somewhere to go see a conference or gone out of town or gone to see if you're a teacher and you go to some other school and when you show up at this school, like all the kids like are nice and, and say yes, teacher, and no, and they sit and stand when they're supposed to and they don't. And you're like, oh, I'm so overwhelmed at all of these things that we could be doing better. And you're, you just take them and you get home and you like try and decompress and be like, I suck. Why do I suck? You know? And what do I got to do? How do I, how do I do this? And you try one of the things and then they fail and whatever. And I remember, um, uh, something that kind of stuck with me since we started this show, I read this in a book a long time ago and it's kind of stuck with me as, as, um, because I felt like it was important, especially for starting an, uh, an organization, starting a church, and um, all the things that go with that. It was like a little line, a little passage that said, God hasn't called you to be world-class or even very good at everything. Instead, he's given each of us our own unique calling together with the necessary gifting to pull it off. <clears throat> that pressure to be world-class at everything, the pressure to be well-rounded, the pressure to incorporate best practices no matter what, because after all, isn't the vision worth it? Isn't the mission worth it? And especially when you attach religious systems to it, then it becomes even like more like, isn't, isn't this what God would want from you? Doesn't he want excellence in every area? And you're like, yeah, yeah, then don't suck. You know what I mean? Um, and so... That's, that's pressure. That's, that's massive pressure. And it's interesting because um, in the business world, they, there has been kind of a, a movement or a renaissance of sorts about strengths and focusing on your strengths and kind of ignoring your weaknesses. And, um, and, and I think they've, they've better understood possibly um, the, the insane amount of pressure in a comparison culture that leads us to try and be well-rounded and trying to be balanced in that area. And, and so they've, Marcus Buckingham has done a bunch of work and, you know, focus on your strengths. And maybe you've taken a strengths finder test as, as a result of, uh, of some of this. My friend Seth recently, um, he used to be a part of East Lake, now he's down in Denver, is working through some of this uh, in his workplace. And he's asked to be able to present sort of a TED talk on focusing on your strengths. And so he sent me an email this week trying to ask me, he says, I'm asking eight to 10 people what I do well. And in order to see some of the threads of who I am, meaning what I do well in different contexts, if you could take a few minutes and write up what you see as some of my strengths, as well as possible, give some examples. I'd really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Thanks, Brent. In other words, tell me what I'm good at. I, of course, sent back a blank email to him, which he says, oh, sorry, I don't think it came through. And I said, yeah, it did, buddy. I'm a jerk. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's the joke, buddy. Ha, ha, ha. Um, uh, and, and, I, and so I, I say all that not to, to portray that I'm a, a jerk of a friend. I, he, just, he takes humor well and, and does fine. But th they understand, like, there's a, there's a movement towards understanding, listen, you cannot be good at all things. It, it would be better for you to say, what am I naturally gifted towards? And then isolate my time or focus my attention, focus my energies, focus my efforts on that specific area instead of trying to be good at something else that maybe I'm not as good at. Remember, uh, I'm 34, so uh, if you're younger than that, maybe you don't understand this, but Michael Jordan, uh, and I can't remember exactly what year, I think I was in like high school or middle school, attempted to get out of basketball, even though he was the best player to ever play the game at that point, um, and possibly, I'm not opening it up for debate now, but possibly ever, leaves 
basketball to go play minor league baseball, and he's just not that good at it. He can't hit the curveball, and just you're, you, 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 spectators and myself are thinking, why, Michael? Why are you doing this? Why, why would you leave something that you have exceptional talent, world-class talent, and go focus on? Is this like this pressure to be like this multi-athlete thing? What is this about? If it's just a hobby, then fine, whatever, but feels like you're struggling with this. I wonder if in God's sight, our spiritual quest to measure up to everybody else's best traits doesn't look just as ridiculous to him. Philippians, Paul writes about this a little bit in Philippians chapter two. Um, This passage is pretty popular because, and I've preached on the first 11 verses of this multiple times, um, because he talks about Jesus being the very nature of a servant um, and taking upon himself uh, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, model your life after that, right? So it, when he talks, it's almost like it's this like phrase that they all knew and all repeat as they try and make sense of who Jesus was and what his life meant to us and how we should then conform our life to his patterns. And, and, then, and then he follows it up with this. Therefore, as a result of all of that, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, as in when I was there to start the church, but now much more in my absence as I write these letters back and forth to you, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Pause there for a second. Those are super loaded words. I, I know that. There have been so many things written about what does it mean to continue to work out your salvation as if it's not an event, but a process. And then also with fear and trembling as if, should we be concerned this about, um, about God? Like, I'm, I'm not sure. I have no confidence in my salvation. I, I, God's up here and he's like waiting to squash us with something or what? What does this, what does this mean? I think what he means here is that it is, I, I do think it is more of a, a process thing that it's, um, um, that we work this out. Like it, it, it's an event that starts it, but then we just kind of play it out. And then also fear and trembling just talks about the seriousness of this deal for it is, and then this is the important part for it is for today, for it is God who works in you to will and to act, to will and to act, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In other words, I think that God has given each of us kind of an avenue of venues created us, each of us uniquely. And in those, he gives us unique gifts to will and to act, the ability to be able to perceive and to process through in order to fulfill his good purpose. I I wrote it down. I summarized it in these two kind of categories, heightened awareness and strong internal motivation. Listen, you you are going to... uh, Learn to grow in your spiritual walk. You're going to grow in spirituality um, in probably some various ways. But the most effective one for you and for me is going to be understanding, God, what, am, what, do, I, what do I have a heightened awareness about? And what do I have a strong internal motivation to do? What is it that for me, uh, I don't bore with the details about learning more about this? And I don't get tired in doing it. In fact, when I'm doing it, I lose track of time. And then when I'm not doing it, all I want to do is get back into reading it. So like reading or, um, you know, journaling or worship or being in nature or all of these different pathways towards God, what is it that is kind of a natural gifting? What is my heightened awareness towards it, strong internal motivation for? That's then what I think Paul is saying in this way we should be focusing on. In other words, we're all biased towards something. What is it that you're biased towards in terms of spiritual growth? Well, isn't it safe to be healthy? Or isn't it safe to be, have a balance? Isn't balance seemingly healthier? Because in life, we often live with the pressure of maintaining healthy balance between work and play, between spending and saving, between 
being a parent who is um, authoritative, but also fun to be around, right? So we're always doing this like, oh man, I'm trying to walk this delicate line, this delicate balance with all of this. And therefore, what happens then sometimes is we carry this over into faith and we go, okay, this sounds really good, but wouldn't it be okay? Shouldn't I be somebody who's, who uh, is able to pull a lot of different things? And what, what, if I'm ignoring something completely that seems so spiritual for them, am I missing out on something? Am I, and I'm experiencing this guilt because of it. But the reality is when you look at Scripture, Look at some of the heroes of the faith and how out of balance their life was. For us to maintain this American um, burden of balance and to carry that into looking at some of the heroes of the faith as they're pre- pre- uh, presented in Scripture, um, it just doesn't match up. For instance, I'll give you just an example of a couple. David. David's a pretty popular guy in the Old Testament, King David, David and Goliath, that whole deal. And we would say... Um, he earned the category of being described as somebody with, uh, who has his heart patterned after God's own heart. I mean, that's incredible. He woke up in the morning and would write so many different psalms and songs. And as you read them, you're like, he's so in touch with his emotions. Yes. Unfortunately, he wasn't in touch with his family as much as he was with his emotions. His family life was an absolute wreck. Um, his situation with his wives, or several, his kids, his own sons, I mean, he didn't have great relation with his sons. One of his sons, his oldest, who knows he's probably in line for the throne because it was a monarchy at that point, right? Who knows he doesn't want to wait for his dad to die, attempts to kill him or attempts to stage a coup to get him out of there. This is his own son we're talking about. But wasn't David like super religious? Yeah, and super out of balance too. Peter, look at the life of Peter. If, if we were living with Peter in modern day, like he was one of the apostles, and we were in that time. There would be multiple times where we would be in with the disciples and Peter would be going off talking when he shouldn't be talking. We'd be like, dude, you should shut your mouth and listen for a little bit. You tend to talk when you should be listening. You do the whole, God gave you one mouth and two ears, Peter. You know what I mean? Use it wisely. Paul, dude, you want to talk about a life out of balance. If you actually read Paul, if Paul had a life coach, right? who had the access to Paul to be able to say, hey, buddy, we probably need to work on this. I imagine his texts and emails would be filled with, "Um, how about we work on being less confrontational and more diplomatic? What do you say? You come across as a jerk sometimes, Paul. Let's soften things. Let's use three praises with one critique or four or whatever that proper, I don't even know what it is anymore. But all of those different things, not balanced, imbalanced, and yet used by God, I'm not saying that ignore things to the point that it could end up causing harm. Because the thing is, well, if we're not balanced, then, what it, then, then we can get so focused on one thing at the expense of something else, and all of a sudden, everything's out of whack. I get it. I understand. That's a far cry, though, from the frantic and futile search for equilibrium in every area of life. When we are juggling competing priorities, our ultimate goal is not to be perfectly balanced. The goal is not to be perfectly balanced. The goal is to fulfill God's calling without falling over. Personal examples. Listen, I know a lot of people who um, love writing in some sort of a journal. I'm j- I just can't do it. It's just not my style. I've tried so hard. I downloaded it in like an app. I paid money for an app to remind me to journal, to be able to hear, and it blinks at me at 940 every night. And you know what I do every night? Close till the next day. I just can't get my mind around doing that. Why would I 
write this. I need to be better at that. Maybe I don't. I just said that. I just said I need to be better at that. And then I realized you're just talking about not being better at that. Okay, screw it. I'm uninstalling that app from my phone tonight. Um, for some people, like you may come and be like, oh, dude, the music is so good. We should do seven songs. No, we shouldn't. We should do three, right? That's three is totally enough for me. And I'm the boss. I get to choose how many we do. So three is what we do. Sorry, Aubrey. I love Aubrey. I think they're super talented. If you weren't as talented, I'd only want two. But you're so talented, I'm good with three. But I just don't engage in that way. And, and, and maybe you do. And that I need that to be okay. I used to feel guilty. My roommate in college, I remember his name's Wes. He would sit in his room because we had different, it was uh, like a two-bedroom apartment. And me and my buddy Ryan and then Wes and, and, uh, and Mikey. And Wes would so often... Um, close his door, turn on worship music for hours and pray. And I'd go in to make sure he was still alive and be like, hey, dinner's ready, man. And he'd be like, please don't interrupt my, uh, my spiritual time. I'm like, oh yeah, totally, totally. And he'd be like, no, I'm, I'm like serious. I'm like, oh yeah, totally. And close the door and walk out. And I'd be like, I wouldn't be like, he's weird. I'd be like, oh, I need to pray more. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then I'd turn it on and I'd, I'd fall asleep. He would come in and wake me up. And I'd be like, yeah, I was totally just snoring with Jesus, uh, <laughs> something weird. Figure out what works. What are you uniquely gifted towards? What is it that God is willing and giving you the energy and the ability to walk through and do with it and be okay with just that? I'm trying to, I, in my parting words in this whole spiritual thing, I want to release from you the guilt of feeling like I've got to do all of the things on the back of this thing or all of the things, Brent, that you talk about every single week. Because every week you come expecting me to talk about something. And so every week I have to give you something that's kind of a, a handheld thing. But there are going to be some weeks you'll be like, really good, but I'm a pass. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm okay with that. That's okay. Great. I, I, I understand that. Important questions to ask as you're filtering through then, what is it for me that I'm called to do? Number one is this, what season am I in? What season of life am I in? Listen, if you are a stay-at-home parent with small children, you probably do not have the ability to do sort of spiritual exercises that require lots of time. And by lots of time, I mean anything more than five minutes, okay? And that's okay. You have to be okay with that. At that conference that um, Andy did, uh, that I mentioned earlier, he stood, uh, stood up in front, and one of the questions in the Q&A was, how many hours a week are you giving to the church right now? And he's like, hey, I'm a single, I mean, not a single, I'm, I'm married, but we're empty nesters. Uh, and so right now, it's like 60, 70 hours a week. And, but you know what? I, that's a lot different than what it looked like when I had little kids at home. When I had little kids at home, my wife would expect me to be home at 5, 5.15, and that's, that's what I did. That's how, and that's how you had to make it work. And I had to have an honest conversation with God, being like, listen, I can give you 45, 50 hours a week, but that's what I can give you. If you want to make a church out of that, great. If you can't, I, I get that too. And I was like, that's, that's brilliant. I understand what season of life I am, and that may work for you, but it just doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm single, or I'm now I'm freshly married, or I'm now single after being married or something. There's all kinds of different seasons that that set up natural life boundaries and limitations for what can possibly work in terms of spiritual growth. You deserve, you owe it to yourself. You need, you really need to ask the question, the honest question, what season of life am I in? Because that's going to shape what it is that moves me forward in spiritual growth. All right, number two is this. Uh, what does God want for me to focus on right now? Uh, what does he want me to focus on right now? A singular focus right here, this moment with what I have, with the, with the current... Um, 
group that I'm in participation with, the intentional community that I'm in, um, the church that I attend, the people that I'm, I'm with, the relationships in life that I'm doing right now, what is it? Number three is this, is anything so out of balance that it's beginning to harm my health, relationships, or walk with God? This is the gut check to say, all right, um, I, I recognize in not being balanced, but could there, it, is, am I allowing myself to be to, to the point where it's actually hurting relationships that are broken relationships, that are relationships that are being affected, my health is, is responsive to this, or my walk with God. This is all, listen, parting advice. I want you to grow. I want to be a, a, a part of a church. I want to structure things, environments here that help you in this way. But as I do it, we're going to present a multitude of options. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't go through paralysis. Don't go through best practices overload. Find what works. Find out what God, what. Paul describes as the ability that God's working in you to will and to act according to his will for your life. Figure that out and go with it. That make sense? Father, I really do think you want every single one of us to uh, take steps forward to challenge ourselves in growing in our spirituality and, and moving towards a better relationship uh, with you and to know you better, to trust you more, and to... Um, see ourselves as, as you see us and move forward in that direction. And that takes a lot of different shapes and sizes and turns depending on the personality you have gifted us with. And I pray that we would be a safe enough place uh, that it doesn't just pump out identical people, but a safe enough place uh, where we all get to kind of uniquely uh, approach you. And um, I pray that you give us, each of us, individual wisdom to be able to navigate through this and then corporately to make sure that that's a value that uh, is still a part of everything that we do. And then the wisdom or the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.